Hello and welcome to episode seven of the Policy Agendas podcast. I am EJ Fagan, tonight joined by four very special hosts, or co-hosts. Uh, so I'm just going to go left or right. I am joined by uh, Chloe Slusher. Say hello. Oh. Hello. <laughs> Krista Kalinsky. Hi. Matt Maldonado. Hello. Now, these three are, are, are Pickle Fellows. They are undergraduate students who have worked with the project for most of the last year and uh, have produced some really great research that we're going to talk about. But I'm also joined by the director of the Policy Agendas Project, Brian Jones himself. Hey, guys. Okay, okay. so thank you guys all for all for joining me. It's uh, It's been a great semester. I have It's been a pleasure working with all of you for this semester. For anybody listening who... Uh, uh, who may not know, what, what have you guys been up to uh, for the last four months for Policy Agendas? So um, we've been, like, coding uh, CRS reports uh, with EJ. Um, Congressional Research Service. Yes, um, which has been an interesting experience to see, like, what congressmen and women um, request like for reports is very interesting to see the topics that they want. <laughs> what what uh, you've now read more CRS reports, or at least the, the the titles and summaries of CRS reports, than any people alive. Uh, so what what have you what have you guys gleaned from this? What uh, what what have you learned about the CRS that that was surprising? I was surprised by the um, I guess versatility that the Congressional Research Service has in regards to writing these reports. Members of Congress come up with all kinds of questions, some very broad. For example, like you'll you'll see CRS reports that are just like Uganda question mark, like very little context. <laughs> just tell me everything there is to know about the country. It is located in Africa. <laughs> it is on the east side near the Great Lakes region. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Things like that. But then you also get some very specific questions that are geared towards economic policy. Like what are the effects of this specific sanction on this specific country or this specific uh trade provision. So I, I, I thought the, their versatility in research was very interesting. Would you guys like to work for CRS someday? It'd be an interesting job, I think. Um, I don't know if it'd be like good, like an inter- long term, but I would be interested to see like how it works on their side, too. The, uh, we, we talked to a former CRS uh, analyst as we were, um, we were putting this, uh, this together, um, uh, Matt Glassman. And uh, what I find fascinating about that and some other CRS analysts I've, I've read about is that one of those reports, or maybe two or three of those reports, is their career. So their their job is to be the person who's the expert on the post office at, for CRS. And you know th- that that report is everything that they know, and it's all written down on paper. And it's their job to take that information and 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 make it available to Congress and 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 uh, help Congress that way. So um, they're fun. And you notice they update these reports, right? Because mm-hmm. sometimes we had to figure out which version we were supposed to take a look at and whether we were to count those separate. Yeah, I think context is very important. One of the things that helped us code these <laughs> CRS reports was looking at not only the the what they spoke about in the report, but looking at the the date and understanding what kinds of conversations were going on in Congress around those times. It kind of gives you more more context for as to how to code them. Yeah. Um, so, Krista, you've uh, you've read a lot of these. I'm curious. Do you have a report that really stuck out as just weird? Anything Anything that you read that just just shocked you that, uh, that it existed? There was something about an agricultural tax on like pigs' feet or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, really specific. Um, there are a lot of really strange ones, but there are also a lot of really broad, just tax policy, those kinds of things. It, um, it, it uh, It's a great data set. You guys are hard at work finishing the last rung of a uh, bit of coding for it. And then we've got a whole lot of reconciliation and cleaning to do after you guys, after you guys, not graduate, I guess, but are, are done for, uh, for us over the summer. 
And uh, <laughs> hopefully we'll have that report that that data set out at some point this summer. So great work, guys. We uh, we and all of all of the country and academia appreciate your hard work. And in the future, it will be available on the Policy Agenda's website. Yep, uh, probably June or July is my guess at this point. Um, so we've got uh, we got some research to talk about. So you you're not just not just research assistants, you're researchers. And uh, you three have been working all year on projects for our pickle program. Can one of you guys just describe briefly the what the pickle program is? Sure. It's um, a year-long research fellowship with the government department here at UT. Um, so students apply, and when you're accepted, you spend a year doing an independent research project, as well as helping the government department with any research they're doing. Um, and such as the, the policy agendas project, yeah. Such as the policy agendas project. Um, and at the end of the second semester, we take a trip to D.C. and get to interview some really cool people and see all the sites. It's, it's fun. This is just over. Did mm-hmm. you enjoy it? Yeah, it was fantastic. The, uh, um, the, the program is wonderful because they, they develop a research project, which is what we're going to talk about for the rest of this, uh, of, of this podcast. So back, way back in September, they're asked to kind of propose an idea, find some data to analyze that idea, work for professors and graduate students to come up with a research design and then execute it. And then last week or earlier this week, they presented those, those projects in a poster session in the government department and university-wide. Um, so I'm going to start with Krista. So Krista, you did a, a, a what I like to call a Congressy Congress project. Uh, so can you describe your project to us? Sure. Um, so my research project was modeled on a project that Professor Sean Theriault did back in 2006. So looking at party polarization based on member adaptation and member replacement. So whether new members are contributing to the increase in polarization or um, current members of Congress are changing throughout the course of their career and becoming more polarized. Um, so I found a little bit, my results were a bit different than, um, Theory Alts in that member replacement accounts for more polarization only in the Senate now, whereas member adaptation actually is contributing more in the House. Um, in 2006, he found that member replacement was contributing more in both the House and the Senate. So something's changed over the last decade and a half. Mm -hmm. What do you think has changed? Uh, We think it may be because of the House Freedom Caucus. Um, In addition, the polarization rates in both chambers are a bit different. So the Democrats in both chambers are polarizing at about the same rate. Uh, The House a bit more polarized than the Senate. But the Republicans in the Senate are actually polarizing quite a bit faster um, and they've actually caught up to the Republicans in the House. So there used to be this weird asymmetry between the, the, the House Republican Caucus and the House Senate Caucus. Uh, I don't even know if they're called a caucus, but the House Senators, mm-hmm. Republican Senators. And that's pretty much going away because of adaptation or, or, beca- or, because of, uh, or because of replacement. In the Senate, it's more because of replacement, although members are adapting as well. So a bunch of moderates are losing their elections and being replaced with, with, with extremists. Right. Okay, that's that's uh, interesting. This was this project was a hit on Twitter. Uh, so so uh, Krista asked me uh, or tweeted yesterday uh, after after her her tweet got eighteen likes on Twitter, which which, which was <laughs> the most of any of our of our projects, probably because it was first. But um, but uh, she got a lot of questions on Twitter and asked, "Is this what it's like to be famous?" And I, <laughs> uh, and I told her coming on the podcast is what it's like to be famous. So uh, Krista, famous person, uh, a question off of Twitter uh, was about term limits. And asked if this, if your results suggest that term limits could increase polarization. What do you think? I think they could. Um, specifically with the House right now, what we're seeing is that 
members are adapting over the course of their career to become more polarized. Um, if term limits were to be imposed on the Senate, I think that could change Senate polarization quite a bit. Um, but I think just as well it could happen in the House. Uh, back when Professor Theriot did his research, he found that member replacement accounted for two-thirds of polarization in both the House and the Senate. And though that's changed a little bit now, I don't see any reason why um, new members couldn't make the House a lot more polarized. Why, why do you think... Um why do you think that uh, replacement is such a powerful mechanism? Is it that primary voters aren't actually making threats to existing incumbents successfully and that the, their only real opportunity to come up with – find a real you know, real true believer is to wait for that incumbent to be gone? Um, or um, are, are incumbents just you – know, is it just an age thing where, where you know, it, it just takes time for ideology to kind of trickle its way up to, to senators who, who have, were elected initially 30 years ago? I think it's probably more so the latter. Um, you see a lot of senators and representatives who have been in Congress for 30 plus years and only recently they've become much more ideological than they were. Um, so Lindsey Graham used to be one of the good ones? Or, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but I wonder if there's uh, something you could think of, now you've studied this in detail, that might help the situation by help as a good centrist, I would say, make the whole system a little more moderate. That's tough. <laughs> yes, it's gotten increasingly tough, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's not a question Anybody for an undergrad. Anybody else have any ideas on this? I mean, I don't. I mean... How well, do we yeah, fix I, uh, Congress? Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm playing in my own dissertation here a little bit, uh, but what do you guys think about the CRS? Is the CRS a force for centrism or for extremism? I mean, I think it depends on the the members who are using CRS, I think if you have some very polarized members who are asking some very polarizing questions, the reports that CRS is producing are going to be somewhat extreme depending on how the question is asked. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I think it depends on the member primarily. Did, did you see any, and we maybe move to Matt's project, um, because it has a problem solving angle, doesn't it? Uh, does, did you notice any changes over time in terms of members asking fewer problem oriented, problem solving oriented questions for CRS and more, I want to find the answer I already know questions? Or did you notice nothing? Did you even think of that? In regards to to my research project well, I was just or CRS, about in CRS general? first, and then we'll turn to your research. But before, let's talk about CRS quickly, and then I want you to explain your research before we turn to it. Um, well, for CRS, um, the way that our reports were assigned to us, they were reported to us uh, thematically. Um, so I, I don't think we got a natural progression as far as time. So every every week we're we dealt four hundred CRS reports in no particular order. Uh, alphabetical order. Alphabetical <laughs> order, but <laughs> but uh, it, they're not chronological. So I think it's a little bit difficult to get an understanding of how issues are spoken about uh, in CRS reports over time. Did you did you see? And both of you, please also chime in. Did you see any anything that seemed extreme to you, or did it seem fairly uh, boring? Is the word I'll use? Are, are these bunch of nerds in the in a back room, or are they or are they true believers? I think it seemed fairly neutral. Um, the titles weren't formatted in like the questions that the CRS was asked. It was just whatever topic they were talking about in that report. Um, so it seemed fairly neutral from 
our standpoint, but we didn't read too deeply into any one report. Yeah, the few that I like did end up reading in an effort like to code them just to figure out what they were about, um, it seemed like there was definitely an effort to just present the facts as they are. Like I didn't notice much like bias or anything along those lines in the reports that I have like dive deeper into. Yeah, I think I might, I guess, showing my cards for my, for my dissertations, I think increasing the size and, uh, uh, and power of the CRS, or at least the, the resources available to the CRS, would be a good way to kind of fight against polarization. The, I'm not, we, may be, we may be too far, too far out uh, with some of these uh, very extreme current members to do that. But uh, go for it, Matt, then we're going to move on. Yeah, I was going to ask a question. Wasn't uh, CRS one of the institutions that was gutted by um, Speaker Ginridge when he took power? It was. Uh, in 1995, uh, you, you uh, dramatically cut the budgets of CBO, CRS, GAO, and Office of Technology Assessment. Well, their budget got zeroed. Yeah, um, and and sort of is coming back, actually. the uh, um, uh, Congress passed a bill last year which uh, required the GAO to basically create its own little Office of Technology Assessment, which uh, hopefully will help. Um, but I want to move on and talk about our next project, Matt's project. So, Matt, your project has a very long title, which is why I didn't even try to say titles. Uh, but why don't you say the very long title of your project? So... I- my project is titled The Reactionary Presidency, question mark. The speed of uh, presidential – I honestly don't remember the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the trouble with long titles, isn't it? Yeah. It looks great on a poster, but it's hard to explain later. Um, but explain it. Yeah. So for my project, I wanted, I took a two-pronged approach for looking at agenda setting. Policy so, agendas. Policy mm-hmm. agendas. Um, so uh, – I picked three policy topics that historically had not been dealt with uh, specifically by the federal government. Um, minority discrimination, higher education, and air pollution policy. And I picked three policy uh, mediums in which uh, these issues were being expressed during the mid-20th century. So I looked at State of the Union rhetoric, party platform rhetoric, and congressional hearings in order to get an understanding of when these policy issues sort of peaked or broke through the legitimacy barrier in each one of these different mediums. And in addition to that, I took the two um, rhetorical mediums, party platforms and state of the unions, and I coded them using an experimental coding uh, book uh, for problem and solution statements to get an understanding of not only when these issues were being talked about, but how these issues were being talked about. So uh, that that was the essence of my project. And what was the result? So the result was... Uh, when you plot those three policy issues in those three mediums, you see that they first uh, came to prominence in party platform rhetoric, which was then very fo- very quickly followed by uh, presidential rhetoric and State of the Union addresses. But both of them tapered off. And when you compare that to congressional hearing data, you see that uh, these three policy issues... Um, grew much more slowly and much more steadily over the years, but continued to grow beyond the scope of the study. I cut my years off in 1984. And that was in the hearings. That was in the hearings. Yeah. So for me, that points to um, a change in the way that these issues are being talked about, primarily uh, through the use of uh, uh, investigative hearings and using the the language from the, the foundational text that I use, the Great Broadening, which is... Which, which is be, not even out yet. Which is not even out yet. <laughs> Um, government attention and government policy thickened after it broadened. So that was my finding as far as plotting those three um, 
So you have this very clear order of operations, right? Mm -hmm. So the party platforms start to talk about an issue. Then the president starts to talk about it in the State of the Union. And then you get congressional hearings on the issue. And you didn't plot this, but presumably after that, then you get policy change. Yes. Um, and so you're showing this very early stage of the, of the, of the process is actually led by parties. Yes, that's what the data points to. Why do you think that it, that is? Um, I think is it, if I was to pair um, party platforms and state of the unions together, I think, I mean, rhetoric is so much easier than kinetic action. With uh, congressional hearings, you got you need to get a policy issue on the agenda. You need to uh, take it through the process to that point in order for this body to meet and therefore register in the in the data set. So I think it's a lot easier. If you're a party who wants to expand the uh, issues that are being talked about to just include an item in uh, party platforms, because let's be real, unless you're super partisan, you're not going to read through those party platforms. So that that's a venue where uh, an issue can be slipped in and over time it can snowball into uh, action down the line, whether it's through, from the president or whether it's from Congress. So maybe you get the president on the deal and more rhetoric, even if you follow other venues, you could find some supporting evidence of that, I suspect. But what about the problem-solving set of questions? What did you find there? Yeah, so I think my most interesting finding from that data set was that when you, when you compare uh, party platform rhetoric in election years where the party is trying to reclaim the White House, so for example, uh, Republican Party rhetoric from the 1968 platform or Democratic Party rhetoric from the 1972 platform, uh, Democrat, Democratic rhetoric has a much more positive spin on the issues when compared to Republicans. Republicans had a much larger percentage of problem statements and statements which I'm calling both statements that uh, express both a problem and a solution within a single statement. Uh, and I mean, that intuitive, intuitively makes sense when you think about it. For a lot of those years, uh, at least the House, if not the Senate, were controlled by the Democratic Party. So it's much it's much easier for the Republican Party to be able to uh, sling things at the opposing party because uh, they're perceived as being in power. They have control of the, the, the chambers. Good. All right. So um, I want to move on to talk about Chloe's project. Mm -hmm. So, Chloe, uh, you didn't do anything uh, involving Congress. I you did, did not. You, since you are a future lawyer. Yes. <laughs> uh, you did something uh, involving the courts. Yes, I did. Uh, so my project was inspired by a combination of things. Uh, we The Great Broadening, which will be coming out soon. Um, and there will be a podcast episode on uh, in May. Um, yeah, so I read that and basically it kind of talks about how government has gotten bigger and federal agencies have increased um, starting in the 1940s. And that kind of got me thinking because I've always kind of really liked the institution of the Supreme Court. It's always been something that I've, like, on a personal level, been very interested in. And so I kind of thought about how those two things could possibly relate to each other and the effect that um, this, like, great increase in the bureaucracy and in this, like, number of agencies, how that would affect the types of cases the Supreme Court has been seeing. Uh, and so along that logic, I kind of hypothesize that there'd be a correlation between um, the increase in the bureaucracy and the number of cases before the Supreme Court um, citing like problematic bureaucratic or federal agency rules that rules that kind of had came in, came into um, clash with the Constitution or with um, some type of law. However, um, kind of surprisingly, I think 
the hypothesis was wrong and there has been no increase um, or no real correlation at all from what I can tell. So the court isn't, so the bureaucracy grows, adopts a whole bunch more policy issues Mm -hmm. and the court just doesn't seem to care. Yeah, that's kind of what my, that's what the data that I have collected uh, has shown that the court seems so, to be pretty much letting the bureaucracy do what they want. So I think it's a more interesting finding than, than finding what you were expecting. So, yeah, I so agree. why? What, what's, what's going on? Um, you know, I don't know. I think I'm almost kind of at a loss at this point because I was so like ready to find exactly what I um, thought I was going to find. And when I didn't, I, at first I thought I did this wrong or something. So I went back and kind of checked and looked to see like what I could have done differently. And um, I did it again, and I came up with the same answer. Um, you know, the rules don't have to conflict with the, with the Constitution. They can uh, be a statutory interpretation, which the court mm-hmm. does, and that's what surprises me about this finding, that they, they're not into that more. I remember John Roberts, when he took over as uh, chief justice, said, uh, we spend too much time on the social issues on criminal justice. We want to spend more time solving business issues. I wonder if in the future some new Supreme Court justice will come on saying, we, we need to figure out how to handle the amount of rules that are coming up without mm-hmm. treating them in a simple fashion, deferring too much to the agency or uh, being too critical of the agency's work in this area. Yeah. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Um, I don't know. I think that like, like, if I were to choose one explanation, I think it's not that the Supreme Court doesn't care and that they maybe won't revisit it in the future, but I do think that if I had the data set, um, I'd like to repeat this project like for the D.C. courts because I think that they catch a lot of the cases um, that I would be interested in before they reach Supreme Court, and I think that the Supreme Court has been deferring to their rulings. Um, That's a great point. It's a wonderful point. The courts specialize, and that's the, de- that's mm-hmm. the brand, that is the district that handles most of these appeals. Great point. And you would think that the Administrative Procedures Act probably governs most court challenges and some of the follow-up acts which put requirements on the regulating process. That's not a problem for the Supreme Court, right? The Supreme Court does need to resolve those issues, right? And whether or not like a law or like a regulation like went through a – uh, you know, a proper cost-benefit analysis, right? Yeah, yeah, I, that's exactly what I think. I think that the problems, um, like, they're just kind of deferring to the lower courts um, because the problems aren't big enough uh, for them to feel like they have to step in, which even that, that I'm surprised that there's not bigger problems because I think that, like, bureau, like bureaucrats, like, they may be experts on whatever agency, like the EPA like environment, for example, but they don't necessarily know, like, exactly like how the law works. And so I'm surprised that there aren't bigger problems that um, have So either the court is not paying enough attention or the bureaucrats are better than we thought they were. Yeah, pretty much. That's that's the big taking for my project. Um, so I, I'd like to wrap up uh, here and, and ask you guys just a little, a little bit of a valedictory question, right? So uh, it's been a year. You guys have uh, been doing research for a year. You've been working with Policy Agendas Project for a year. You've spent a, a intense week in D.C. interviewing people. Um, so can you guys each name me one thing that you've learned about public policy in, in the United States that you didn't know a year ago? And I'll give you guys a second. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna talk for a little bit while you guys think, uh, and and tell everybody that uh, we've got a nice upcoming schedule for the next month or so. If you're still listening to this, I probably should have said this at the top of the show, but whatever. Uh, we have an education policy podcast coming, hopefully in about two weeks, and then we're going to be doing uh, the great broadening with uh, with Brian, his co-authors, uh, co-authors Sean Theriault and Michelle Wyman at some point in May. Uh, so now that I've vamped a little bit, uh, who would like to go first? 
What have you guys learned? Krista, what have you learned? Um, I think just in the course of my project specifically, um, I think I expected to see some massive change in the 115th Congress with Trump coming in and with the what seems to be a pretty big change in political rhetoric. Um, but really, polarization's not the rate of polarization isn't really changing much at all. Um, so I was really just surprised to see that despite all the negative attention politics is getting in the media, um, nothing's really changing all that much between the parties. So is is the Trump phenomenon a symptom of a longer problem or is it causing a new problem? It's definitely a symptom. Nothing new is really happening, at least in terms of party polarization. Good. Good. Sometimes we don't pay enough attention to the trends and we want to see this dramatic effect from one new leader. And sometimes that's not the way it works. As a matter of fact, I think most of the time it doesn't. Yeah. Matt, what have you learned this year? Hopefully something. <laughs> yeah, I think if I had to boil it down to one specific thing, I, I was a little bit surprised as to how um, positive the uh, party platform statements were. I, I assumed going into, the, into my research that, in, especially in years where parties were trying to reclaim the White House, um, party uh, platform rhetoric would be overwhelmingly negative. Uh, but with the exception of that one instance with uh, Republican... Uh, party platforms in those White House-seeking years. Uh, almost all other instances, uh, the the positive statements hovered around 50%, and that stayed consistent across parties, uh, across uh, election years. So I was actually surprised by that. Why do you think that is? That's a good question. I think... Um, it's the question I always ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think just because of the, the spectacle that is the convention... And the, the show that the parties are trying to put on for their constituents, they want to keep things positive, especially because, I mean, even when you're, for example, if you're in the minority party, if you're trying to reclaim the White House, you, you still have a stake in the, uh, in the legislative process. There are still Republicans involved. So I think being overwhelmingly negative in the end doesn't necessarily help your cause because there was, there was still Republican hands in the pie, for example. What, do you, what else do you guys think about that? So why why are these these party platforms? And I'm I'm with Matt. I've read a lot of them, and they're they're very aspirational. So why why are parties aspirational? We we hear about negative campaigning as the most effective type of campaigning, and this is in a way a campaign document, but it doesn't look like the rest of the campaign. Is all uh, in the end is most American dialogue about aspirational matters that is uh, freedom and liberty and choice and <clears throat> and uh, shining city on the hill to quote President Reagan. Uh, I think it dominates in many ways American politics. I'm surprised as Matt is that it shows up in the party platforms, but I guess it does. <clears throat> I feel like parties like to be associated, like if it's on their platform, it's really closely associated with them. And so they like to be like more positive. Um, but the negative campaigning, it's effective, but they ne don't necessarily want to associate it with them directly. Um, you, they want to sign their name to it. Yeah, they don't yeah. want like openly sign. Yeah, they don't want it on their website or anything. But uh. yeah, it's I um just my thoughts about this. Yeah, I don't know how much of you how much C-SPAN you guys have watched during the during the uh, the the party conventions. I've watched a number of party conventions through and through uh, every minute of them, and they're fun. 
Like they, they, the, 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 the delegates who go there, like they really love what they do. They, they love politics. They love, uh, they love policy. They think that they're there for a purpose. And you know, when the parties are, are, are putting their mission statement out there, I think that they're, they're putting out something aspirational because that's what they are. They, they, they're an aspirational institution. And, you know, even, you know, th- there's some parties in recent years that I have disagreed with strongly, but you go and you watch video of their convention and they're, they're holding up American flags and enjoying themselves and having the time of their lives. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, I think, I think, I, I think we underrate that in, in our cynicism sometimes. Um, and, uh, as a future professor, hopefully I, that, that is one of my, one of my goals with my students. One of the things you should look at then is a comparison of party platforms here and other countries in the world to see if we're more or less aspirational compared to them. You got a senior senior thesis, Matt? Uh, (laughs) Chloe, one thing you have learned uh, to end this podcast. Uh, So I kind of have two things. Uh, One, just how powerful like federal agencies are. Um, That's definitely a big takeaway from my project. Um, But also just coding the CRS reports gave me a really good insight as to like how the lawmaking process works on the like side of uh, like senators and representatives, um, uh, just like that they don't know everything they're legislating on and that they need help giving information. I thought that was really interesting um, and just in the topics that they choose too. Um, it just gave me a really good insight as to like the legislative process or a better insight. Yeah, you guys have you guys have not just worked on CRS reports. You guys have now read. Congressional hearings, a lot of congressional hearings, right? You guys are about to do go visit a whole lot of public law web pages. By the way, just <laughs> just a, on your way out the door, they're all they're all smiling and very happy about the work I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna give them. Uh, you, you guys, I'm trying to think of what else you guys you guys have worked on, um, but you, you guys have been have have uh, I think really she, seen the legislative process in detail. Um, so Chloe, I, I want to ask you, um, what what uh, can you think of something that Congress does that you didn't know it did? That 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 that's just interesting. Um, I mean, I didn't know that the congressional like CRS existed until um, I entered this. So that's like I, I mean, I, until this, I think I, the main source of information that I thought of was like lobbyists and think tanks. I knew that that's where a lot of people or representatives got their information. Um, and I so I did not know that there was this whole service that provides very detailed information. It makes me feel a bit better, almost. <laughs> like they, they know what's talking the, about. The experts are in the house, yeah, somewhere <laughs> down the street. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're there. Just go talk to them. Right? Just well, ask them. They're running. Yeah. They're running Windows XP in their computers, but they're there. <laughs> so, some of the most ideological congressmen can come up with some imaginative policy proposals, perhaps because of uh, operations like CRS. Matt Getz, who is famous for being a little bit kooky out of West Florida, has a wonderful climate change proposal. So, really? Yes, he does. Wait, what's the proposal? <clears throat> That's for another podcast. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for joining me. This has been your Policy Agendas podcast. <laughs>